The following podcast is brought to you by Babe Media. I'm Emma Clark. And I'm Kelsey Burdett. You know those people you follow that just seem to get it? They have the Instagram content that you actually watch. They own the brands that you just can't stop buying from. And they tell the stories you actually remember. The kinds of people that leave you wondering, how do they do that? Well, we follow them too. And we have the exact same question. Join us as we interview the people that leave us thinking, oh, they get it. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you're having a wonderful week so far. This episode's really exciting, and I feel like it was only a matter of time until we had Allie on because there's just lots of parallels with what she does and what she cares about and the whole reason why we do this podcast. It's interesting. She also got her start in tech sales and met her co-founder, who was also a colleague in tech sales. So just, yeah, lots Mm -hmm. of cool overlap here. 100%. I'm also selfishly like obsessed with this business model. So working in marketplaces now from the tech perspective, I see how difficult it is for brands to connect with one another and platforms like Bulletin just make that connection so simple. So I tried my best not to geek out in this episode on like the tech and the platform. And I think we did a pretty good job, but Ali's story is just... She said that her superpower is resilience, and you can see that through and through. The business has taken so many turns, all for the better, and she's just like relentless in the pursuit of solving these customer problems. So big fan of Allie. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think you'll get a lot of value in this episode if you are uh, a brand that's looking at maybe getting into retailers and doing wholesaling, or just if you're someone who has a business that maybe you want to change the direction and you're wondering, how do I pivot my brand? What do I say to my board or my investors or XYZ? It's a really good reminder that you can pivot and you can change your path and that's okay. And if your first iteration of something, you realize, oh, this isn't going to scale or this doesn't make sense, that doesn't mean you have to fold your business. That means there's just different opportunities out there. And I think it's just, it's a great reminder of that. It's a great listen. Allie has amazing energy and great stories. And I think we should just get into it. Let's do it. Welcome back to another episode. Today we have Ali Kriegsman with us, who is the co-founder of Bulletin. Ali, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Also, you have like very good podcast voice. I do oh. need to Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, so to start us off, Ali, I want to get into how Bulletin has got to where it is, but start off with who you are and what Bulletin is today. Yeah. Um, so I'm Ali. Nice to meet anyone who's listening. I'm the co-founder and COO of Bulletin, which is a wholesale marketplace. For those who are unfamiliar with the wholesale marketplace model, it's super simple. Essentially, if you run a product-based business, whether you're making apothecary products, jewelry, apparel, accessories, you name it, we make it super easy for you to connect with retailers and distribution partners all around the US and Canada. So think of like a soap maker who wants to get their store into a boutique or an athleisure company that wants to get their products into a gym. 
We make it super easy for brands to connect with those partners and do business through our platform. And then on the other side of the marketplace, we obviously have our buyers, our retailers. These are the gyms that are sourcing inventory for their retail section. These are juiceries that are you know, sourcing inventory for their retail section. These are brick and mortar stores, a lot of online retailers, a lot of social sellers like creators that might be selling inventory through TikTok or through a blog that they run. So yeah, we've been in business for about six and a half years now, but we only launched the marketplace in uh, late 2019, early 2020. So right before the pandemic. (laughs) Um, And before that, um, Bulletin ran its own retail stores for nearly three years. That's kind of how we uncovered this unique insight that a lot of the wholesale inventory discovery and order management process was super cumbersome, really broken. We wanted to build a technology that streamlined it. Um, And then prior to running our own stores, my co-founder Alana and I actually ran our own e-commerce newsletter, um, spotlighting and selling products from the coolest emerging brands all around the U.S. Oh my gosh, there's a lot in there that we need to dig into. Just to paint the picture for everyone on how big of a problem this wholesale connection is between buyers and sellers. Back when we were selling Shopify Plus, we'd be working with multi-multi-million dollar e-commerce brands who were operating multi-million dollar wholesale departments in Google Sheets and spreadsheets. And they were using price lists that they would import manually. The margin for error for most of these businesses is off the chain. So having platforms like Bulletin is a complete game changer. So I just want to make that very clear. The work that you guys are doing is solving such a real problem for these brands. So Ali, take us back. Bulletin's had a lot of evolutions. Talk us through day one and how things have shifted since then. Yeah. So day one, oh man, I get so nostalgic. So <laughs> bear with me. Um, so I met Alana, our CEO and my co-founder at a different company called Contently. We were salespeople at that company. I was actually more junior to Alana. She was a sales exec. I was like an entry-level sales hire. We started on the first day, we were desk mates and we actually didn't connect right away. A lot of people find that surprising, but for about six months, like nearly half a year, I think because we were just kind of in different stratas within the business. Um, we never really connected. Like we hadn't formed a friendship. Um, slowly but surely though, um, my boss got fired. And so I kind of took on a more senior role very quickly within the company and started hobnobbing with, you know, the sales execs and the people that had started in a more senior position than me. So Alana and I started to really connect on, you know, what we loved. We both loved um, small businesses. Both our parents are entrepreneurs and run small businesses and have our whole lives. We both love just like going to flea markets and kind of stopping by all the cute indie retail stores around the Lower East Side and Brooklyn. And we would just kind of start to do that with each other over the weekend. Alana initially came up with the idea for Bulletin. It was an e-commerce newsletter, as I said, that would get delivered into a reader's inbox a few times a month. And we would spotlight these brands, write long form interviews with them or editorial features on them. And then you could shop the makers products throughout the story. And we worked with like a lot of really, a a lot of brands that are now quite big. Like Susan Alexandra was selling on Etsy when we interviewed her and now she has her own store Mm -hmm. um, in Manhattan, for example. And so we were just very obsessed with these entrepreneurs that kind of had risked it all to do something really creative and follow their passion. And We felt like Etsy was really oversaturated and not a great kind of storytelling platform for these makers. And we wanted to kind of 
create a more elevated, sophisticated version. Um, and so the early days was like really just scrappy and fun. Like we would stay late at our office and, you know, have the office beer and wine and order in sushi and just work for an extra few hours. And we're the last ones to leave. We would like sneak out of the office in the afternoon and like put fake meetings on our calendar and go interview <laughs> different brands all around New York City or in Red Hook. And then we would work together on the weekends from her like dilapidated, gross couch in her old apartment. And <laughs> it was really low pressure. Like it was, I think, really just the story of two women believing they could do something bigger, believing they could do something more, not having a master plan specifically of what that would look like or what it would become, but just wanting to lean into our ambition and kind of egg each other on, if that makes sense. Like, I think we both had a really strong um, sense of ambition, but also mutual accountability. And I think that's why our partnership thrived from, from the outset. Although it's very interesting hearing that you guys didn't know what it would be in the long run. I find that like anytime you start a side project, you're excited by it. It's new. It's interesting. It captures your attention. And then at least I find you get to a point where you're like, okay, what am I doing this for? I'm working yes. so hard. I'm getting a little progress, but I'm feeling like if, if me personally, if I'm not anchored to the vision of what I'm building, it makes it really hard to wake up early and put in those extra hours. Did you guys find that? I I definitely think I struggled with that more than Alana did. Alana is like her her persistence, her work ethic, her resilience is unmatched and I think I'm a couple years younger than her and she was a role model to me from the very beginning, but I think that I came around to modeling my work ethic and my ability to kind of wake up at 7 a.m. to start an 8:30 workday with her, especially when we had gone full time, right? And like you're the only ones holding you accountable. Like it wasn't mm -hmm. a side project by early 2016. Right. And I would have to be at her apartment by like 8 39 AM to get work going. And she, like I, she was the one that I was doing it for, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think when you respect your partner and you take your partner seriously, like you don't want to let them down. So I think for me, the thing that kept me going and the thing that allowed me to like lean in and kind of wake up earlier, eke out those extra work hours at night, even though we didn't know what this was becoming, like we got traction very quickly. Like we were making money for this business from the jump. Mm. Um, and I think the fact that we were like putting this work in and pretty quickly seeing results was very validating. Um, and it got us excited to keep doing more and kind of see how it evolved. But I also think the thing that kept me going was as an entrepreneur myself and as the daughter of, you know, my mom, who's been a longtime small business owner, like, I do think that the customer, like this brand that we were trying to help spotlight and help them get more sales, like having known those people intimately from doing interviews with them and hanging out in their, you know, offices and their studios and their homes and learning about their lifestyles and their families, like I would interview these, these people for like two hours. And I think we felt very accountable to them and very indebted to them. And we wanted to build something in the long run that helped this customer make more money and grow. We didn't know exactly what the longer term solution would look like. But I think that having that like deep respect for this small business owner, this maker, this creative entrepreneur made it easy to build this business because it's not like, you know, I was building some like weird I don't know, like secret government technology, <laughs> like spy on people. It's like, oh, I'm building this this thing, no matter you know what it looks like in its final form, that is going to help these individual people who are trying to build businesses. 
Oh, it's so fascinating. And I see so many parallels. It's just interesting. Like Kelsey and I both started in tech sales too. That's where we met. We didn't really become friends until a couple months down the line. So it's just interesting to hear um, your path and how it's all panned out. How did you know when it was time to make those pivots in the business? So to go from newsletter to in-person marketplaces and then to go from in-person marketplace to wholesale, what were those leading indicators that told you it was time to make those changes? Yeah. So it's, I mean, we, I don't know that we always like identified as a venture backed company from the jump. I don't know that that was necessarily our big objective, but once you take on venture financing and I write about this extensively in my book, Mm -hmm. um, you're on a pretty set path. If you're not growing, if certain kind of metrics or data points in your business aren't changing and moving in the right direction, then you have a problem on your hands. Because when you take on venture capital, you are promising your investors a certain return. They're expecting to get at least a 10x return. Of course, they're placing bets. And for every, you know, 100 companies that fail in their portfolio, they have an Uber that goes public and makes them rich and kind of offsets all the losses. But I think that because of the Uh, accelerator program that we did um, in 2016. And then again, the kind of more magnified version of it in 2017, we did Y Combinator Fellowship, Mm -hmm. which doesn't exist anymore in 2016. And then we did Y Combinator's core program in 2017, where we moved to Mountain View for three months. You know, they gave us money to build the business. They took equity in the company. Um, I think having that that is our financing vehicle kind of hanging over our head at all times, constantly put us in a very rigorous position of like looking at our business and being like, is this working? Is this growing? If not, what are we going to do? So we never really were building like a lifestyle business. Like our mandate was never to kind of go grow slow and grow conservatively. Like there was always this pressure to grow exponentially. That's what a venture backed, that's what a good venture backed business does. Yeah. So I do want to be candid that like, I think that as the backdrop led to a lot of our decision-making to get a bit more specific about what that felt like though. When we were running the newsletter business, for example, we were making money, but it was just like a couple thousand dollars every month. And we interviewed all of the brands that were selling with us on what was then our Squarespace site. And we were like, Hey, we're just like eking out a few sales for you every month. Like we're not helping you. Like Mm. we are doing this. We are building this to help you make money. How can we help you make money? And there was this resounding feedback from the brands that they actually made a lot of money when they would do things like a pop-up in a store or, you know, sell at something like Smorgasburg or Williamsburg Flea or Brooklyn Flea rather. And so we were like, okay, we can do that. Like it was this very just like, reactive thing of like, you want a pop-up market? Like, we'll give you pop-up market. This is going to be a great way to make money for the brands and also promote our e-commerce site and our newsletter. So the first thing that we did in building the markets to supplement the e-commerce site and the newsletter was really to just like help brands make more sales through Bulletin. And they did. It was super successful. Like we would rent this open air parking lot that was 18,000 square feet every weekend for like $1,200. And we would make like tens of thousands of dollars in a weekend. Um, And we would make the brands like thousands and thousands of dollars in a weekend. And then what happened was like, we tried to do two pop-up series at once and like scale it. And it just kind of fell apart. 
And we were like, okay, we need to like give brands a way to sell their products in person, but in a way that's scalable. But we kind of liked this idea of a pay to play retail model where like we liked that the brands were paying for space in the market versus with a typical store, as you know, you're paying wholesale for inventory. We liked that this model, you know, reversed the who pays for what. Mm -hmm. And so in order to scale, we started opening retail stores, but then we kind of copy and pasted the business model where brands paid a membership fee to be in the store. We gave them a real time analytics dashboard where they could see their sales in person so I won't go into all the like nitty gritty anecdotes of the different pivots, but I definitely think like there was a um, headspace of like needing to scale, but then yeah. you feel it when you can't. Like oh. we felt that we couldn't scale the markets because we did two at once and it was a mess. We eventually felt that we couldn't scale the stores because we were running three at once and on like the operations front, the personnel front, like it was a mess. And I think we all see with WeWork, like scaling physical space rapidly at all costs, like it's software just like doesn't work. Um, And so there was that headspace of needing to scale and then us kind of physically coming up against the barriers of scaling and having to be honest with ourselves about like how burnt out we were, how kind of Mm. like cobbled together the business started to feel as we started growing with the business being so reliant on these physical touch points. And that's when we eventually pivoted and decided to build the wholesale marketplace. And that was basically like, okay, how do we get brands into stores without us having to be the store? Yeah. Um, and the marketplace is, you know, what we came up with. And we've been running that model with no retail stores or no kind of physical space overhead um, since early 2020. I love this story so much. It literally takes like a product manager's brain and applies it to different business models, you fall in love with the problem and then how you solve it can evolve so long as you're making progress towards actually solving that for your customers. Um, Venture dollars are, they come with a lot of eyeballs and not every dollar made is created equal in a lot of VCs' minds. How they value a content company is very different from how they value an events company or very, very, very different from how they value a SaaS company. So when you had all of this pressure and you were literally changing business models, did that create more pressure from the VCs? That's a good question. I mean, I I feel like I'm in a place to say this Now, like, I do not understand why venture capitalists invest in any brick and mortar based concept. Like, VC money is meant for businesses that can scale software. And, like, you will never scale a WeWork like you can scale software. You will never scale a bulletin with our stores like you can scale a software platform. So, I think that what it it was this unique period of time where there was this like bubble that had been created in the venture world where it was normal to be pouring gobs of money into a WeWork or into a Notel um, or into a Bulletin. I mean, we didn't get gobs, but, you know, we got into YC. We got something. Totally, yeah. That, I mean, it would have been great to get gobs, but... <laughs> or maybe not. Looking or maybe back. not, right? Um, and so I think that what happened was we kind of came to, like, we had our big epiphany around when the market was having its epiphany. So mm-hmm. our investors were, for the most part, from what I remember, were not super antagonistic about the pivot into software because, as I mentioned, we 
already had a software component to our business. We had the real-time sales dashboard for brands. We had also built our own internal inventory management system that synced to Shopify to support our three stores. And so we kind of pitched it as taking the most scalable part of our business and blowing it up and expanding it versus, you know, blowing up the entire business and starting over. So I think that there was, I wouldn't say pressure from our investors or, or pushback or blowback to the, to the pivot, to the wholesale marketplace, but there definitely was pressure to like get the marketplace launched as soon as possible and like start getting users and iterating because at that point we had run this completely other business for nearly three years and it was a pivot, right? Like to shut down your stores and build and run a wholesale marketplace oh, yeah. than running the stores. Yeah. So I think there was this sense of like, we don't want the business to be on pause for too long. Like ideally you shut down the stores and then scale the marketplace at the same time. So I think that's what it was. Like they, our investors, our new investors, our prior investors just didn't want this lag between the old business and the new business. Mm-hmm. Throughout these pivots, how did you reinvent the brand along the way? And how did you shift that narrative and perception of what you do? Was that challenging? Was it well-received? I'm just really interested in, yeah, how the branding changed. Yeah. I'm I'm like amazed that we even, that we did it as successfully as we did. Like it kind of feels like this weird thing that we got away with. But I think the reason it worked is because we weren't we weren't massive. Like people in New York knew what Bulletin was. People in SF and LA knew what Bulletin was. You know, we had three stores. The stores has gotten a ton of press. We had our own like reality series in Inc. Magazine to launch our flagship store. We had been in like BuzzFeed, the New York Times, Refinery29. Like the stores were everywhere. Um, they were on everyone's Pinterest boards. Like we started seeing other brands and stores pop up, you know, kind of mirroring the aesthetic that we had pioneered. Mm-hmm. Um but it it's it's just all about transparency and communication. So we the first kind of big, I would say, like brand pivot that we did and positioning pivot we did is when we initially launched our stores, they mirrored the markets pretty exactly. So the markets were like a free for all. We worked with any brand. They could sell any product category. We sold everything from like live plants to like empanadas to like gold <laughs> jewelry that cost hundreds of dollars. Wow. Like it was a smorgasbord of vendors and products. Yeah. Um, in our first store, which we opened in so oh no, in Williamsburg was the first one. I booked all the brands for the store and it was like a similar just kind of shit show assortment. It was like a tech wearable next to Thinks Period underwear, next to like reading. <laughs> <laughs> and so within like a couple of months of running the Williamsburg store, and then shortly after we launched our Wooster store, which we actually shut down four months into running it, which had a similar, just kind of like no direction, no theme, like any brand could have their inventory, their vibe. By like the summer of, I want to say 2017, we decided to completely rebrand our stores and the business. So after we did Y Combinator um, in early 2017 and Trump won the election, mm. uh, Alana and I just became obsessed with like helping women business owners and women mm-hmm. entrepreneurs. We were one of only two fully female founded companies in our YC batch that had, I think, 150 companies in the batch that year. Wow. Which was like abysmal. Even, I mean, it's gotten much better. And I, I argue that it's 
it's a hybrid, it's a pipeline problem. There's a lot of reasons why more women aren't building tech companies, but even now, like YC's most recent batch, I think 10% of the batch was, was made up of women, um, women identifying founders. So that was kind of one thing. And then the other thing was Trump had won the election and it was the night that Alana and I got into YC. Literally we got the call that we got into YC and then, and that we'd be getting like you know, $150,000 for our company and like the prestige of, you know, Y Combinator affiliation, which was Mm -hmm. a big deal. And then literally an hour later, they like called the election for Trump. (laughs) We were like, what the fuck (laughs) is happening? Um, So we woke up the next morning, we both laid in bed, we were just like crying. Um, Mm -hmm. And we were like, we have to do something. What can we do? And so we decided once we got back to New York to huddle with the team. We were only like eight or nine women at the time. And we decided to exclusively support women-owned businesses in the stores um, and just kind of completely rebrand the business to be like very feminine, very metropolitan, very edgy. So that was like the first overhaul. And I would say once we made that shift, like the entire business exploded 2017 after that rebrand and repositioning was like the biggest year for the business ever. Like that's when the year we got into the New York Times, that's, you know, our stores were like filled to the brim every single weekend. The sales were insane. We opened our Nolita store. That one was like so well received. And then once we eventually had to pivot into the wholesale marketplace, we knew that we couldn't just work with women-owned businesses because we didn't want to limit the types of businesses that retailers could order from. We didn't want to limit our ability to scale. Um, We knew that we had to change the visual language of the business. I remember when we launched the wholesale marketplace, we launched it with our like store color palette. So it was like purple, pink, Mm -hmm. yellow, bright green. And retailers would email into me and just give feedback, constructive, positive, um, like mean, kind. And one of the retailers wrote in and was like, I literally can't look at your site. I feel like I'm about to like have a seizure. Like I have a seizure (laughs) disorder and your site is like, way too much for me. Well, Um, they're honest. (laughs) Exactly. And so I I remember me and Alana got on a call with our, the creative director that we worked with freelance. She did the store rebrand and that first pivot. And we were like, Hey, we need to rebrand the business. It's B2B. It's not just women centric anymore. We want to work with all different types of brands, all different types of retailers. We still want to keep the feel, you know, elevated, sophisticated, and fun, but like we need to kind of make it feel a little more gender neutral. Right. Um, and now our color palette is this like beautiful kind of minty oh, yeah. green, black, white neutrals. And when we shut down our stores and launched the marketplace, I just made sure that across Instagram, email, um, our old e-commerce site, like we were just honest. We were basically like, hey, we've set out to help small businesses scale and grow and increase their distribution. We were frankly handicapping ourselves with this store solution. And like we have loved serving this customer, this consumer business that we've built has been so meaningful to us. Um, but we're going to move on now and move forward. And our stores will be, you know, shut down these different dates. Our Instagram is going to evolve to be X. Um, you won't be able to shop our e-commerce site anymore by Y date. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, a lot of people responded like very oh, yeah. excitedly. Like we had a going away party, like a goodbye party for Williamsburg, which was our first store. And like, 
we basically like sold out the store, like everyone that had been involved in the business in some even minor capacity, like rolled through, everyone was drinking. We like partied till late at night. That's so cute. And yeah, I think just like optimizing for transparency and treating your customers like they're adult human beings who like can see through stuff um, and who want the truth. I think that's, that was the approach that kind of made the transitions as successful as they were. Some of the best advice that I've ever received is this notion of in the absence of a story, people create their own. The best thing you can do for people is just be explicit and not let their imaginations run wild because the truth is you're trying to improve and make a better solution for them. And so if you can tell them why and bring them along in that journey, you'll always have their buy-in. Yes. I will say the one thing that still happens to this day is we get DMs from people that like live in Texas that heard about our store and came to one of our stores in 2017 or 2018, kind of in their peak years. Yeah. And they're like, I went to the Williamsburg store and it's closed. Like, oh, no. fuck you. Like you didn't. And we're like, hey. Oh my gosh. We are so sorry. And then a lot of old customers too, they like continue to go to our site and they don't realize that it's wholesale. Like you can't shop from Bulletin. Like if you're it's not like Amazon, right? Right. It's like if you're a buyer and you have a reseller ID and you're going to sell it wholesale, you can shop from it. But we do get a lot of customers that are still confused. Yeah. Um, But I think it's like very special to have built a store experience and a brand that like, even though it's been dead for years, still lives in people's minds. And it's still like one of the first places that customers try to go to when they're taking their trip to New York. It just sucks that, you know, they get to one of the locations and we're like, hi, we're not here. We haven't been here for a while. So sorry. You know what? You have the best entrepreneurial attitude because you're right. It actually is a compliment when people are screaming at you. It doesn't necessarily feel that way, but yes. that's that's yes. a good takeaway. Um, you mentioned something in the rebrand. You had a contractor that was redesigning. Um, what does your team structure look like? Yeah. So most of our team is fully in-house and full-time. Now there have been different stages of the business through different kind of pivots and evolutions where, you know, in scaling up our engineering team, it was faster to outsource those resources in like Eastern Europe, for example, Mm -hmm. for a certain period of time, and then slowly start migrating those roles over to internal roles and hiring people that are based in the U.S. There are, you know, certain teams that we've always kept in house, like our sales team, our marketing team. Um, Design is something that's fluctuated between in-house and external Right now, we have about 30 full-time employees. Most of that headcount is allocated to product, engineering, and growth. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, some members of the team have been with us for like four years, which is wild. Like they've been through these various evolutions and pivots with us, which is insane. But yeah, the team is like fully remote. Uh, We have like a co-working space that people can use if they're based in New York. We try to do offsites twice a year, like once, you know, every half year, but it's a pretty eclectic mix. Like we have folks on the West coast, East coast. Um, we have a few people that are working from Mexico right now. I feel like post COVID it's just really allowed us to give a lot of flexibility to mm-hmm. our team. And I think it's being really well received, which I love because I love the flexibility too. Before we pivot into quick hits, one more question on bulletin. What does the next year or two look like for bulletin? Yeah, we have some exciting stuff in the mix. Hopefully, we will be continuing to grow, continuing to expand the business, hopefully layering in kind of additional tools and services um, to help our brands and retailers 
build the business of their dreams. It's our tagline. That's what we're always optimizing for, hoping to grow the team, hoping to hopefully integrate some, I don't know, like in-person elements to the business. I think that the online marketplaces have become very tried and true resources for retailers and brands. But I think that we're, fingers crossed, kind of out of the woods with COVID. We've definitely gotten a lot of feedback from our community that they want to activate in person again. So yeah, just kind of continuing to lean into what's working, continue to grow, and hopefully we'll be able to diversify the way that we help this amazing small business community. If it's okay with you, Ali, let's pivot. Let's jump yeah, into our quick right. hits. We actually don't have that that many, but we are really bad at the quick part. So we'll do our best to try and get all of them in before we let you go. So okay. my first question for you is, what trait do you most attribute to your success? Oh, man. It's a big one. <laughs> I mean, look, I think I have to say resilience. I think that the key to success is finding the areas that you can be resilient in, if that makes sense. Like I grew up and I was very good at a lot of things. Like I was kind of in my zone of excellence in many classes, doing many activities, but there were certain things that I just didn't want to get better at. Like I was not as great at math and I was not inclined to take advanced AP math courses. Same thing with like physics, for example. But I found that with writing, with English, with um, my philosophy courses, like I really wanted to get better. I really wanted to challenge myself. And when I failed or slipped up, it motivated me more. And so I think resilience can come very, it's, it's hard to come by resilience when you're building something or working on something that isn't kind of leveraging your core strengths or kind of your magic sauce. I think that once you figure out what that is, you know that by building resilience, you're just going to get better, build even more of a toolkit and become even more valuable and even more of an asset over time. So I think resilience for me is like, I've, I've wanted to become a better manager. I got an executive coach for a period of time. I wanted to build a bigger business. So we pivoted. We have failed and fallen on our faces multiple times, but Instead of seeing that as like, oh, I'm just not good at this, like what I used to tell myself about, you know, math or science classes, I look at it and I'm like, oh, I can get good at this. So I'm going to trudge through the mud, you know, swim through these hard, sticky parts and try to come out the other side, a better leader, a better entrepreneur, a better writer, a better thinker. And so I think that resilience is definitely what's given me my leg up, but I will admit that I don't think resilience is universal, universally applicable. Like there are certain things I'm not resilient in. Like sometimes like <laughs> I'm a bad runner, right? Like I'm, I'm not going to tell myself I'm going to do a 60 minute run. And then if I am in physical pain within 15 minutes, like I'm going to stop, but <laughs> I've, you know, wanted to build a big venture back business and hit certain revenue milestones. Like if it feels painful by year three, like I'm going to keep going because I believe that I, have the right toolkit and skill set to leverage my resilience and come out the other side stronger or more successful than how I started. Such a good answer. I will never be a runner either. And I'm I'm okay with that. Yeah, it's just not gonna happen. You have to you have to find the thing that you love doing where your resilience comes easy and it doesn't feel like you're ripping your hair out every day. Yes. Yes. I love that. Um, next question, what advice do you have for your younger self? 
Oh, I would tell her like, Allie, you are, you're so smart and creative and special and bright and ambitious. And I think I spent so much of my younger years comparing myself to other people, kind of trying to fit other people's definition of success. Like I went to Penn, I went to an Ivy League school. Um, Mm -hmm. I always been smart, you know, studious, ambitious, but everyone at, at college was like trying to get a banking job and trying to get a consulting job and a finance job. And I actually write about this in my book too. I did like on-campus recruiting and I got a job in asset management and accepted the offer as like my first job out of school. But I then went to the orientation and like looked at all the people I'd be working with and like got a better understanding of the type of work I would be doing. And I was like, get me the fuck out of here. I was like, (laughs) I should not be here. Um, And I reneged on the offer without having a backup plan. I literally Mm -hmm. was like, hey, I don't think I should be doing this job. But I spent so much of my younger years doing exactly that, like optimizing for what other people were benchmarking as successful or what other people saw as like a sign of you know, wealth, fulfillment, happiness versus looking inwards to be like, what's going to make me happy? Like, what is my definition of success? And then I was really lacking in believing I had the toolkit and the wherewithal to actually define what would make me feel successful and then get it done. I always just didn't really believe that I had what it took. Oh my gosh, that's that's so interesting to hear you talk about because when I was researching you, you also were quoted talking about when you ended up becoming an entrepreneur and taking a hit financially as you were getting your business off the ground, you made some serious sacrifices while friends and your peers around you were getting promoted. They were running with their corporate jobs. They were looking like they were making all this progress. And so it's interesting to hear that that theme applies to you twice. It definitely does. And it was really, it, I had to kind of create a set of mantras for myself, right? Like looking around and being like, okay, I'm drawing no salary and I'm working on this like asphalt parking lot every weekend, working seven days a week, like getting up at 7 a.m. on Saturdays, build this 50 tent vendor like party in this massive parking lot, going to bed on Sundays at like midnight after shutting down this event at 9 p.m. And this was every week, every week, week after week. And meanwhile, my friends are like, come to my you know, birthday dinner, it's like $150 a head. Like, oh, oh we're going to go to like this vineyard. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm 25, I'm 26. Like, what am I doing with my life? But I just had to kind of create these mantras of like, I'm doing what makes sense for me. And their path is their path. And I need to stop like looking over my shoulder or just like looking past my blinders and just stay the course. Oh, That is such good advice. That is a sound clip for the century. (laughs) Um, Next question is, what is the last book you read? Okay. So I'm reading a book right now called Other People's Clothes. It's based in Berlin. I'm obsessed with books, shows, like true crime about female friendship. I feel like female friendship is a very underexplored, like highly rich very nuanced, very interesting. It's very interesting territory. Mm -hmm. Um, And so not to like pivot into pitching this book, but it's about these two (laughs) college age women. They're very different from one another. They meet studying abroad in Berlin. And it turns out that the woman that they're subletting their apartment from is this like mysterious artist creator character. 
And they are convinced that she's like spying on them while they live in her apartment in order to write her next fiction book that she's like drawing inspiration from the lives of these two college age girls. And there's just a lot of like drugs, partying, like introspection, like nuanced stuff about female friendship. And, and it's a breeze. Like I'm, I'm heading on a trip, uh, in a couple of hours and I'm like very eager to finish it on the flight. So other people's clothes, highly recommend. Okay. Love it. We love a good fiction recommendation. Very good. Actually, before we go to the next question, can you plug your own book quickly for the audience? Yes. So my book is called How to Build a Goddamn Empire. It came out last April. It's pink, black, in your face. It makes like a very cute bedside table book or coffee table book. And the book is basically like the no bullshit book on entrepreneurship you always wish existed. When I was starting my business in 2014, 2015, I was reading books like Girl Boss and Lean In that Mm -hmm. I do think were very important to kind of kick off the women entrepreneurial movement and like surge that we've been seeing over the last 10-ish years. But I found that a lot of the business books that I had access to were kind of written from on high. They were written like a while after these women had became successful. Like I couldn't really relate to Sheryl Sandberg, right? She's like mm-hmm. many decades and like billions of dollars ahead of me. <laughs> um, and, you know, other books were written by like men that just kind of had like connections and lifestyles and like a chain of events that I couldn't relate to for how they got their business started or how they became successful. And I found through my entrepreneurial journey that the most helpful people, especially women that I was connecting with, were just like a few paces ahead of me. Like if I was raising a seed round, I want to learn from a woman that like closed her seed round a year ago, not a woman Mm -hmm. that already IPO'd her company. Mm -hmm. Um, So I felt like that book was really missing in the market. Um, So the book tells my story, Building and Scaling Bulletin. It's kind of memoir meets business handbook. But then I interviewed 30 other women business owners um, running companies of varying stages and sizes. And I essentially ask them the same questions that I'm like answering and the same like ground that I'm covering in the book. So if I'm talking about how I financed Bulletin, you hear from like 20 other businesses about how they finance their company and why and how it's kind of affected their growth trajectory and other decisions that they made. When I write about like imposter syndrome, you learn about it from my experience, but then we learn about imposter syndrome through the lens of a black woman entrepreneur, for example. Mm -hmm. So if you are a solopreneur or a female founder at any stage and you feel like lonely, impostery, confused, or just like, you know, lost along your journey, I feel like this book is perfect for you. Um, The best compliment that I get about the book is it feels like, you know, the co-founder that I never had or um, like, you know, the founder support circle that I never had in book form. So yeah, I'm very proud of it. I'm just super thrilled with how people received it and that they like got it. Um, It's a definite, it's a definitely a different tone. It's a bit more like crude, kind of candid, a bit more crass than other Mm -hmm. business out there. But I think that keeps it real and it makes it feel way more relatable and digestible than, you know, other books you might find on the same shelf. Yes. Oh my gosh. Love it. I feel like our audience would find a ton of value in it. So we will link it in the show notes. Everyone listening, go check it out. Um, Okay. Next question. What's one thing you don't understand? I don't understand why 
crypto is not understood as just a massive like multi-level marketing scheme. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> like I don't understand. I feel like the entire world is trying to like pull the wool over our eyes and get us to throw money into this like speculative asset that they're claiming is also a currency. I've been doing a lot of research on crypto. I watched like a big documentary on it recently called Line Goes Up that just kind of undercuts all the big, you know, bellowing, excited points that people make about the potential of crypto. But I don't, it's not that I don't understand crypto. I feel like I do understand it. And I don't understand why there aren't more people like Ben McKenzie. He played Ryan on the OC. He's like a big outspoken critic. Like, I feel like we should all be seeing crypto the way Ben McKenzie sees crypto. And I don't, I don't know what's going on. Do you know what's so funny? I was having this conversation about NFTs and all of these like, pop culture, like icons, for example, are just like coming out with their own NFTs. They're building hype around it. And then they're basically like dropping it and stepping back and just collecting yeah. checks. And even yeah. in secondary markets, like it's so lucrative, but it's, it's, yeah, it's only as good as the hype is. And so if you have the exactly. right people endorsing it, great. But the second that goes away, what happens? Yeah. It's, it's very dangerous to me. And I, yeah, I just want to like shake all of the crypto promoters, like their little babies and just be like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you don't feel strongly about this, do you? I can tell you've never even thought about it. <laughs> I just feel like it's very predatory. Like I don't, I think that, in, I mean, I, my relationship with money could be a whole separate podcast episode. I write about it in my book as well. Um, I have a very specific relationship with, with money and my finances Um, but yeah, I just find it to be like very predatory. And I think anything that kind of uses its complexity and its impenetrability, like crypto is very deliberately complex and confusing Mm -hmm. and you like people in crypto using that, like the, you don't understand angle or like, if you only understood angle, it's like, well, why is it so hard to understand? (laughs) That's sketchy. I get behind um, that actually. Like anything, anything that you need to confuse people in order to get them to use probably should set off some warning bells. So I like I like that as like a principle generally. Yeah. There you go. Interesting. Okay. What's another brand, obviously, other than Bulletin? And it could be one of the people you work with, or it could be something totally separate. So what's a brand that you're loving right now? No. Uh, okay, so I'll I'll promote my friend. My friend Sandy Lang. She's a designer. She's based in New York. I've known her for a few years now. We met through mutual friends. I just feel like everything she designs, I want to own. I think that her aesthetic is very in line with mine. It's kind of like edgy but feminine. It's not too glam, but it has this kind of like sophisticated, like pastoral vibe. And everything she's done has always just been so authentic. Like her grandma stars in her ad campaigns, like her Instagram aesthetic has been very consistent. Her brand's aesthetic has been very consistent from the very beginning. And I think what's really special about Sandy is it's actually hard to stay consistent. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that especially with things like we've talked about with like crypto, Web3, with, you know, surging trends like sustainability in the apparel space, or just certain like aesthetic trends that you see crop up in your Instagram feed or on TikTok, like Sandy doesn't cave to those. Mm -hmm. She's always been very true to herself, true to her aesthetic and true to her vision. And I appreciate and marvel at 
the kind of stubbornness of that and the consistency. And I think it's going to help her go a long way. Um, it's Sandy Lang. If you want to check it out, S-A-N-D-Y-L-I-A-N-G. Everything is so cute. Amazing. Okay. We'll link that in the show notes too. So people can go check it out. Love it. Well, Ali, we'll wrap up the interview here. This honestly flew by. It was so great chatting with you and so just so great to meet you. So thank you so much. So good meeting you too. Thank you for having me. I can't wait for the episode to come out. And yeah, thanks to everyone for your support. There were so many takeaways for me. Honestly, so many good reminders and then also so many takeaways. I think to Allie's advice for her younger self, which is to avoid the comparison trap. And I honestly feel like for entrepreneurs, if you master your mental talk tracks, you will master business. But it has to be in that order, especially when you're at your most vulnerable as a new business, as a young entrepreneur, as someone without just a lot of life experience, you really need to pay attention to those stories that replay in your mind because this is the long game. It's not like you can just sprint a marathon. You really need to take a long-term perspective. And I just think Ali's advice was so true. Oh my gosh, completely. And I feel like this interview came at a really good time for us, Kels, as we're thinking about the future of They Get It and what we want to turn this into. And I feel like we've kind of been going through this like growing pain period. So it's really important to remember that like you can pivot, you can change. Yes. Your mindset is so important. And Allie's awesome. She's a very inspiring entrepreneur and I'm excited to see what she continues to do with Bulletin. So definitely check out her book. If you are an entrepreneur or you're thinking about starting a business, um, we'll link it in the show notes and go check out Bulletin. They're doing really amazing things. This episode was brought to you by Bay Media with technical production by Burke Johnson. Burke Johnson.